you can't ask other people to come and help the NHS and then not give them the same career progression as everybody else. You, you, you cannot set the template that you are coming here just to fill in the post that nobody else wants to do. That's not the narrative. You want fairness, let's bring fairness properly to the system. Hello and welcome to the Medical Women podcast, the podcast from the Medical Women's Federation, the largest body of women doctors in the UK. I'm Dr. Nathana Bayankaram, I'm the Vice President of MWF, and I have the honour and joy of being your host, as each week we hear from wonderful guests to help you feel more empowered and confident on your medical career journey. Just a quick announcement before we get into the episode. Our upcoming Autumn Conference is on the 18th of November in Nottingham. It's our first in-person conference since the pandemic began, so we're incredibly excited and we would love to see all of you there. I'll pop a link in the show notes for how you can register for the conference. Um, There are bursaries to apply for if you're a medical student or a junior doctor. We would absolutely love to see all of you there. The the conference organising committee have done a fantastic job. They organised this conference initially for May 2020 and it has been postponed several times. So we're incredibly excited that we finally get to go and have this in-person conference. See you all on Friday the 18th of November in Nottingham. Hello, it's Jenna here. You may know me as the editor of this podcast, but I'm also a medical student. So I have broken out of my editing suite to tell you all about a really important decision from the MWF Council. The Medical Women's Federation has always tried to keep student membership as low as possible. But with the cost of living crisis and the NHS bursary being what it is, the council made the decision to reduce it to the very lowest amount of £5, which essentially covers the cost of membership administration. Now, usually when people are offering things for £5, they compare it to the price of two coffees. And I don't know where people are getting their coffees, but I cannot get a flat white for less than £3 these days. So for the price of one and two thirds of a flat white, you can become part of an amazing network of medical women with wonderful opportunities, such as networking at the twice yearly conferences, getting involved with research projects, chances to enter competitions and workshops for members. I'm particularly excited about the Autumn Conference, the details for which you can find in the show notes uh, and on the MWF website. Basically, just Google MWF Autumn Conference and you'll be able to find the details for registration. Also available to both medical students and junior doctors is the Lady Estelle Wolfson Conference Bursary. So that's something that I will definitely be applying for. And one other really thoughtful detail from an MWF conference is that if you're like me and you're a little bit nervous, a little bit awkward going into a professional event by yourself, so you sort of end up hovering by the buffet and pretending to have something super important to attend to on your phone, then MWF offers a buddy system for first-time attendees. Nothana doesn't know it yet, but she's my buddy for the autumn conference. So all medical students, please do take advantage of this opportunity to join the MWF. My association with the MWF has been one of the most positive decisions I've made recently, um, and I highly, highly recommend joining. All right, enough of that. On with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Medical Women podcast. So over the last few weeks on this second series, we've been discussing various aspects of leadership. And something that's come up in several of the previous episodes is international medical graduates. 
So we've discussed how a great proportion of SAS doctors are international medical graduates. And we've also um, discussed with Professor Dame Carrie McEwen, the chair of the GMC, um, about international medical graduates being more likely to be referred to the GMC compared with those who are UK graduates or EU graduates. So I wanted to discuss this further on the podcast. And this week's guest is Professor Partha Carr, who is a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology and the Associate National Clinical Director for Diabetes at NHS England. But he also does a lot of work on race and racism and tackling these inequalities essentially in healthcare, not just for making things better for patients, but also for colleagues. I had a really interesting discussion with Partha about what we can do um, from a systems point of view and from a personal point of view to to, um, make things better for our colleagues who are international medical graduates. You might have heard me mention on the podcast several times that, you know, I think a lot of the issues that we're facing are system levels issues, like there's systemic racism or you know, systems are built in a certain way that they that they do discriminate against, whether you're a UK graduate or an international medical graduate. And yes, of course, we need to work to change these systems. But I also want each of us to feel that as an individual, we can do things to make our own changes. So it was really interesting to discuss um, both of those aspects with Partha. We also spoke about um, how he got involved with writing regular articles for the British Medical Journal. I first came across him when I spotted his articles in the BMJ and we discussed various other really helpful topics. But the main thing that we discussed was what we can all do to support our international medical graduate colleagues. I really hope that you find it helpful and I'm sure you'll find it quite an enjoyable episode to listen to as well. This week is our our first in-person conference uh, since the pandemic began. So feeling very excited, look forward to to seeing lots of you there. Um, If you can't make it this time, then please keep an eye out for when we have our next conference in spring 2023. Enjoy this episode. As always, please rate and review the podcast if you find it helpful. Thank you. So it's lovely to have with me today, Professor Partha Carr. So welcome to the podcast, Partha. It's so nice to have you on here. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much for the invite. Much appreciated. And could you start by telling us a little bit about you and your career? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a consultant uh, in diabetes. I did my training in the Wessex region. I was an international medical graduate myself, came here in 98, 99. So went through all the sort of usual sort of, you know, whatever it is and became a consultant in 2008. Um, and then still am that, uh, but I've got a couple of other national roles, which I do. I've been one of the national leads for diabetes for about six, seven years now. And uh, over the last year and a bit, have been sort of uh, working on the issues of racial equality, especially in the medical workforce. So it's the sort of MRES, we call it, so it's the medical workforce race equality. So that sort of data came out in 20, I think 2021. Uh, and uh, so we're trying to change the data. That's why I was asked to come in and join and see what I can do. So though that's a very rough uh, run through of what I do. I, I've also done the, or still do the getting it right first time role in diabetes, which is about variation. So yeah, fair few other things so in, the, in the mix. 
Yeah, you do. You do lots of things. So um, can we speak a bit more about that MRES data? Mm. Sure. I mean, I think if I can crystallize it, um, what I always say is that um, if, you, if you take a look at it at any angles, whether it's referrals to regulatory bodies, whether it's representation leadership positions, whether it's uh, bullying, harassment, whether it's uh, how you, whether you feel valued, uh, um, your ethnicity matters. Uh, and because we and we see that gap. Now, people always sort of say, oh, you know, is this just politically correct things or whatever, it's a walk thing to talk about, but that's just the data as it is, you know, it, it, it shows it in every single quarter, whether it's a GMC referrals or whatever. And uh, so we, uh, we have a responsibility to try and correct that uh, in my book, uh, because there's plenty of data that also correlates to outcomes um, for the, um, for the population. Uh, we know that, uh, we also know that uh, workforce is a problem. And if a huge percentage of our workforce comes from other countries or from non-white ethnicity, then we have a responsibility to look after them as well. So you, you won't improve the overall uh, workforce morale if you're going to ignore such a huge proportion of your workforce, is what I would say. Absolutely. And yeah, you're absolutely right that the, the NHS's workforce is its most important asset. So if we don't look after the workforce, then you know, we're going to be in even more dire situations than the, we are at the moment. And so much of our workforce, as you say, are um, international medical graduates or doctors from various ethnicities. And I think there's there's two levels, isn't there? There's on a system level, we need to make changes to the actual system, but also on an individual level, there's things that we can yeah. do to support our um, yeah. to support our colleagues. Um, so I wonder yeah. if you can speak a bit about both of those. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem. I think I mean I've been doing this as a, as I said the role for about since last year, August or thereabouts. I think one of the fundamental problems is that a lot of people doing this, doing these roles, uh, you know, I've always said, if you, want to, if you want to step into the space of racism and try and tackle it, you've got to be ready to be uncomfortable yourself and make others uncomfortable. I think just putting out policies and writing documents uh, ain't going to change it. And all the data sets tells you it doesn't change it. So if you've got personnel who would rather just do the policy and say, oh, we'll let the system change. And I think a, a fundamental belief that, oh, we'll just share data and people out of the goodness of their heart will change the outcomes. Well, that approach hasn't worked. So, you know, you're the vast majority of people you would like to believe, believe in fairness and they'll look at the data and they'll try and tackle it. But there is also going to be a significant part who are not going to do it. So you've got to challenge that. So I think as far as I'm concerned, it comes back to the mixture of things. You have a system level policy changes, but you need to track the data. You need to break it down in individual areas. You need to query individual cases, set, set your markers. That's my sort of view or my sort of way of approaching it. Um, and unless you do that, uh, you will not change the system. And uh, that, that's what we need to do more and more in my book. So just setting out policies is not going to change the narrative in my view. How, how can we go about changing the system? So I think, you know, it depends. I mean, so we, we are trying to outline plans. And yeah, I think we try and make, you know, try and sort of bite too much of the pie in one go. I think you need to have very focused interventions. So we are going to lay out some plans for very focused. We're calling the first five because it's not the only ones. We're saying that there's plenty more that should come. But I think GMC referrals got to be top of the tree. And we need to tackle that one by one. We need to have blind panels. We need to have better process and question back if we find there's evidence of uh, unfairness, right? 
So we've recently seen the Manjula Aurora case, which teaches a lot of public uproar, and we got involved, it's changed, GMC have accepted, apologized, but it should never come to that. So now you need to question those and see what is going on. So a GMC referral is top of the tree, have process by all means, but I think you need to track it. And if there are differences based on your ethnicity, you need to query the system. You need to have open public debates with their chief execs uh, of these trusts. And in my book, you know, if you've got a poor data as far as race equality goes, you should not be getting a good rating from CQC. You should not be up for awards. You should, you should, you know, and that, that's how it should be. So accountability should be laden with it. Apart from that, I think if the next things we want to do is target what we call our SAS grade colleagues, because there's a there's a huge number of people from the ethnic minority background in that sort of grade. Well, let's put them into leadership positions. Why not? Well, let's try and sort of champion them into teaching positions. Why aren't we doing that? I mean, you track that data. We need to look at how we welcome international medical graduates. Um, and I think just giving them an induction course is not it. I think it has to be far more than that. You know, people come to this country. I have been in this position. You're lost. You, you're looking for friends. You're looking for some support. You're looking for basic, you know, tips about living. And people need to be much better at it. So there's no point. And you and people need to help uh, others understand different cultures and um, as I say you know giving people the opportunity to understand what is acceptable and not right things to say different cultures will have different nuances that doesn't make them a bad doctor right uh, so things like that I think there's a lot of things we so we're going to outline four or five things we want to do as I said uh, we want to track how, how the colleges and societies are doing with representation we would like to have better interview processes I just want to track data because I think to your question, how do you change the system? You change the system with data, uh, transparency and accountability, uh, not just policies. Yeah, I'm, I'm just nodding along vigorously to everything that you're saying because I completely agree. There's so many different things that we can do. And um, just thinking about the rotor that I'm on now, um, I'm a pediatric registrar and the, there's, mm. you know, most of the, like the rotor only works because there are, lots of um, clinical fellows who are mainly international yeah. medical graduates and they do an amazing Absolutely. job and Absolutely. and they've you know this isn't a, a place where they've like grown up and they're used to the systems and things and for most of them they're working in a language that isn't their first language and just so much respect for everything that they're doing that we absolutely need to support these colleagues yeah that's what i totally believe i mean i think you can't ask other people to come and help the NHS and then not give them the same career progression as everybody else. That's yeah. as straightforward as that. You, you you cannot set the template that you are coming here just to fill in the post that nobody else wants to do. That's not the narrative. You want fairness, let's bring fairness properly to the system. Yeah, absolutely. So we've spoken about system levels um, as individuals, like for each of our listeners. What, what can we do as individuals to help support yeah. our international medical graduates and just, you know, help to make the system more fair and more equal? So I always say there are four types of people when you're trying to make change on an individual level, right? There'll be a group of people who already are with you, who already believe that the system needs to be fair. We need to look after international medical graduates and they're there in the system, right? It doesn't matter what ethnicity they're from. They'll come out, they'll greet you, you'll help you. Great. Don't need to do anything with them. There's a second group of people who will always look for data. They're more sort of scientific minded. They would say, well, how much of a problem is this? Um, so that's fine as long as, um, the, you know, the, there's plenty of data out there that show it's a problem. So I think that group now needs to stop asking for more data and actually act on it. So either you believe the data, or you don't believe the data. 
if you're gonna keep asking for more data, there's a fundamental question whether you actually want to inherently believe in it or not. So I think that's group two. And group three, uh, I always say is that they're so you know, struggling with life. I think if you make it policies, they will do it because for them, it's more about following the herd. Uh, the problem area is group four, whereby they don't believe it's a problem. And I think we need to individually challenge that. We need to sort of say, well, I'm sorry, but if you're doing so and so, uh, and you don't have time for people of different ethnicities or different, then you shouldn't have people coming from other countries and working in your unit. You should, they shouldn't be coming and filling your rotors. So, you know, thereby, and your, your trust shouldn't have a good CQC rating. So you have some uh, consequences for not doing what any normal human being should do. And if you do that, you will change behavior at all level. So that's the individual thing. And I think everybody who listens needs to, needs to think in their mind, which group do I fall in? Uh, one group will do it automatically. One group, it's time to do it because you've got enough data. One group will just do it. And another group don't want to do it, but then you need to rethink as to the consequences that should bring with it. It's that group four, isn't it? And you, you said earlier as well, that if you're, if you're in this space, you have to be prepared to be having kind of uncomfortable or difficult conversations. 100%. 100%. You, can't, you can't deal with racism by, uh, you know, by just saying, oh, we'll just be all be collaborative and have a group hug and sort it. These are centuries of issues, right? In, you know, in yeah. built into people. They, this is going to be uncomfortable. Of course, it's going to be uncomfortable. But that's the whole point of it, that you're having that discussion in an uncomfortable space. And you need to decide whether in a modern society that's acceptable to, you know, have that sort of belief and prejudice or not. So there's nothing wrong in it. And that doesn't make the whole of the NHS and whole of the society racist, but there are certainly people in the society which are giving the society a bad name and they need to mm -hmm. change their behavior and everybody needs to be an ally to help change that. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just about to bring in a question on allyship and you uh, you just spoke about being an ally. So how, how do we go about being better allies, whether it is, you know, men supporting women against like yeah. sexism or just different intersectionalities how yeah. can we all be a better ally so i think the concept of allyship i always say to people let's take sexism since you mentioned it it's not the job of women to sort sexism it's not it's the job of all of us and i don't say that glibly and that doesn't mean you need to make a grand gesture about it and go and wave flags or do hashtags and do documents right if you want to tackle sexism you're if you're out with your friends and somebody says something inappropriate you just step in and go like come on guys that's just not right that's mm -hmm. the biggest thing you can do as an ally. You know, the world of sex, women are not expecting men to sort of go leaping to the rescue at every single, you know, sexist comment made. But what they are expecting or would like to see is, you know, amongst your friends and amongst your close colleagues that these sort of things are shut out and you sort of turn around and say, come on, guys, you know, let's not do that. That's very powerful rather than making a massive scene about it. Racism is no different. It's not like every single, you know, brown and black person or anybody from other ethnicities going like, oh, my God, I need white people to jump in my defense. No, I don't need that. I can look after myself, guys. You know, I'm very, very comfortable looking. And, you know, there's a power dynamic. L lots of people don't have the power I, I would carry and would not be able to defend themselves to do it for them. Right. But I can look after myself. But I still go to meetings. It would lovely to see colleagues go like, come on. Yeah, that's not right. That's all you need. Uh, and, and I've said that in my BMJ blogs or everywhere public, and I've said that very, very clearly. I've been supported by some amazing people from white ethnicity in my career. They, I don't see them as white. They don't see me as brown. We are just very, very good friends. And uh, we help each other in our career. We've done well. I've never in my 
20, 25 odd years seen anything or distinguished any part of me. And I worked with them. They were my uh, consultant. They were my research supervisor. Now they're my consultant colleagues. It's never arose in my, our minds about color. So there are fantastic examples of that. So that, that's what allyship is about. Opening the doors up at a fair level for everybody else. So that's what it is. I think that's that's a, a lovely explanation of allyship. And, you know, absolutely nobody's expecting somebody else to come and rescue them or stand up for them. But just it's up to all of us to pick up on when something happens that actually that's not okay and that's not appropriate. We, if, that's it. We're all we're all there to support each other. So um, I think that's I think that's um, a great explanation of it. You mentioned your BMJ blogs, and I have to say I really do enjoy reading those. How did you how did you go about like how did that come about? Well, I was to be honest, I was asked for the BMJ because I, I've always written my own blogs. Um, mm. I used to write blogs regularly, probably one a week. I mean, I don't find time much nowadays, and they were quite sort of because it was my own blog. There's no restrictions, right? So I just used to write whatever I wanted, and I think probably caught the eye of the BMJ. And uh, used to be uh, used to be lots about diabetes. Occasionally, I dipped into the issue of race and stuff, uh, and uh, I talked about NHS politics and stuff. And that's why they came to me, and I said, "Yeah, I'd be delighted to." So. And I think the BMJ has got a huge readership. And so it's a, it's a fantastic forum for me to, I could talk about diabetes every week, but I do it sometimes, but I think it's more about, it gives you a very good forum to talk about what I believe is social justice and all that sort of stuff, which I think is important in modern society. I, I fundamentally believe in it. That's the values my mom and dad have put in me. So uh, I like using that forum to do it. It's, it's, it's an avenue. That's the way I put it. Well, I'm sure I'm not the only person that enjoys reading them. So thank you for um, for writing them. And with your role, your role at NHS England is it's a diabetes based, isn't it? Can you speak yeah. a bit about yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, the diabetes role uh, has been really been a really fantastic journey. It's been a, you know, we uh, made some commitments to the type 1 diabetes population and type 2 diabetes population, what we do. Uh, it's shared with me and Jonathan Balaji, who's a consultant colleague who works in Imperial, and uh, he tends to look at the prevention side, type 2 diabetes. I tend to look at the safety and mostly about technology and type 1 diabetes. So we're very proud uh, in the sense that we've got some of the best outcomes in the planet at the moment, even though the NHS is tanking, diabetes outcomes are really good. Uh, we've got a huge uptake of technology, and uh, that's been a journey in itself, trying to reach across the systems, get the funding, get nice approval. And uh, I think we're one of the leading countries right now as far as access to technology for type 1 diabetes goes. We have made blood glucose monitoring away from finger pricking. We're very proud of it. So, no, that's been a good amputation rates have dropped. Uh, cardiovascular outcomes have improved. So that's been a fantastic journey in the diabetes space. Uh, really, really enjoyed uh, making all the connections. Yeah, that's that's fantastic with the outcomes. I'm quite interested in pediatric endocrine diabetes. So I, I... I could keep asking you lots of questions about diabetes, but um, but I think because our listeners, um, mm. uh, they range from medical students all the way to retired doctors, and probably all of them won't be as interested in endocrine diabetes yeah, as me. Sure. Um, but this series, we're kind of exploring leadership and leadership lessons. And I wonder if you can share some lessons that you've learned along, along the way of your career and leadership journey. Yeah, I mean, leadership is a funny thing, right? Uh, I think a lot of us associate leadership with charisma which is a problem, mm -hmm. uh, it should be associated in my book with outcomes, okay? 
And I think it gets somewhere wedged in between where actually a lot of leadership is about people talk about, oh, we need to be compassionate leaders, we need to be this, we need to be servant leaders. All of these terms are bandied about. And I always say they're actually worth nothing if you haven't actually improved health outcomes or whatever your target is or social justice, whatever you're doing. If you haven't improved it, okay, your leadership style didn't work, right? There's no point in being everybody's friend if you actually haven't improved things. And I get that all the time. People, so I, I can be quite tough in some of my approaches with systems that are not giving technology. And I've said, I've been told, you know, you, sometimes you need to be kind to all. And I'm like, well, I need to, my first priority is to be kind to the parents whose child have type one diabetes and are struggling with hypos at home. That's my first priority. After that, I'm very happy to be kind to you. So I don't want to be just kind to you and then deprive the parent of their sleep because they're worried that their child may not wake up in the morning, right? Yeah, and so, absolutely. And I think that's what leadership is gets stuck in the process and I think the NHS is very typical I don't think there are many uh, professions which do what we do you look at sports and everything leadership is defined by outcomes you don't go like oh he's a really nice football captain or a cricket captain he's really nice with everybody in his press conferences but he lost everything well what's the point of that so I think what you need to say is that you know you need to perform and leadership is about outcomes and if you're doing a leadership in a health space you need to think about it. I think people need to think about what is my why am I doing this? And I think leadership is done in the NHS, in my experience, broadly for two or three things. One is people who genuinely want to improve outcomes. And then you should put your money where your mouth is and say, I'm going to be measured by X and Y. Right. And the next one is the next group of people purely want to do it for a CV purpose. And that's that. And I think if that's your intention of doing it, you won't succeed. And the third one, which is sort of is linked to number two, it's a stepping stone to doing something else. Again, you won't succeed. So you would succeed in getting your documents out, your publications out, but you haven't really shifted the outcomes much. And I think that's a problem. So I always say, you know, whenever people say, have you, you know, who do you think are the best leaders? My examples are always goes back to sports and other areas, right? I always talk about people like Mahendra Singh Dhoni, uh, the cricket captain of India. I talk about Shah Rukh Khan from Bollywood. You know, that's success, that's leadership, that's they've shown how what the way is. You know, you talk about, um, and even in, you know, English concept, you know, people talk about, oh, who's the best leader England had? Well, Ian Morgan was amazing, right? You know, he may not be as fetid as some of the big captains, but he was amazing. He won so much stuff. He was great. So I think that's the way we should do it. And I, I, I don't feel that the NHS... And it just gets too wrapped in process and doing tick boxes on leadership when it should really focus on the outcomes, whatever, you know, whatever it is. So, for example, if you become a leader in pediatrics, your, your outcome should be, have I improved the quality of life of children? That's it. You know, if the answer is yes, you've been an amazing leader. If you haven't, you haven't. So th that's what it is um, in my book. And I know it's quite simplistic, but... I've always believed in that. That's the way I've done my diabetes role for six years. That's the way I would like to do my race thing if I carry on, that is. Um, so we shall see. That's that's such a, I mean, so many important points there, but you're right. I think a lot of the time we focus on being nice and being kind. And whilst, yeah. yes, it is a, an important value to be kind and we don't set out to be unkind, but it's, it is looking at those outcomes and actually to be kind and make sure that, Every child with diabetes gets yeah. continuous glucose monitoring. You you have to yeah. have difficult conversations. Absolutely. And I'll give you one example in the race area. 
So people say, oh, we need to be kind to all. I said, well, this is the problem. In the in the bargain of that, we're ending up being kind to the racists, when you, the perpetrators of racism, when we need to be kind to the people of suffering it first, right? And if you're going to say that just we just need to be kind to everybody and that will heal the world, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're living in some sort of a Disney World fantasy, which doesn't exist, right? And as I keep on saying, the NHS is not Disney. It's not Mordor either of Lord of the Rings. It's somewhere in between where you've got good people, you've got not so good people, you've got people who are very open-minded. There are also people who are sexist and racist because the NHS is from part of society. We have the same prejudices as everybody else. And it's take, it takes me a long time to get it across to people that, trust me, it's not like if you wear the blue and white badge, you suddenly become some sort of noble being who doesn't have any prejudices in life. That's not how it works. So I think people need to appreciate that more. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think also, you know, people don't want to think of themselves as sexist or racist oh, or whatever oh, it is. So so then they think, oh, but, but I'm not like that. But we had that during the Me Too thing, wasn't it? It was like mm, most women yeah. are going like, so this is what happens. And men are going, like, well, I would like to tell you in my experience, but it's not about you. Yeah, It's great. You're fantastic. And you think about women as equal and all that. They go and educate everybody else. There's clearly a problem. Women are saying it. But a lot of the reaction was, oh, like just to say not all men. Well, that's besides the point. You know, you and you, and I will get that a lot. It's like when you talk about race, they go like, well, I would just like to tell you. It's like, okay, well, that's fantastic. But you inhabit a circle where there is no prejudice. But that's not what the data tells us. So except there is a problem. And I think that that's the issue is that people get very defensive as if it's like a personal attack. And you go mm-hmm. like, well, if you don't explain, and I'll give you one example, which was recently, we, we did all the data sources, blah, blah, blah. And it showed that um, a black child has got half the chance of a white child getting a continuous glucose monitor in this country. Half, wow. not even decimal, but half, right? Oh, that was in 2019, 2020. And everybody's on a three-line whip from me is that that needs to close. There's no discussion around it. You want investment, we have given investment, we're going to do that. So I was in a meeting and some pediatric consultant said, oh, we feel a bit like uh, you're calling us racists. And I said, well, I'm not at this moment, but that's the data. You've seen the data. What do you think? And they said, oh, the data's shocking. And I said, okay, now that you know the data, if you haven't corrected it in the next two years, tell me what term you want to use on me. Because if you're aware of a gap and you haven't you know, stretched every sinew if you believe that a white child and a black child should have the same access to care and in diabetes continuous glucose monitoring in kids, the fundamental standard care. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't closed that gap, what are you doing? So I think that's the discomfort that people need to go through, accept there is a problem and then try and change it. Otherwise, going back to it, you're in group four, you're out and you don't want to change it. Fine. So that's that's the sort of debate. Yeah, and as soon as um, as soon as like we get defensive about something and the walls come up, it just switches off to to learning and change, doesn't it? Whereas, yeah. as you say, it's not we're not individually saying you know you are racist, but the data is yeah. there that a, a black it's child has got half the chance of getting continuous glucose monitoring, which is what they should be getting. Yeah. It's up to everybody to make sure that okay, why is why are we not at equal? And how do we how do we get there? Yeah, rather than being like oh, I'm being told this. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. I, I, I don't know how we go about stopping people from getting defensive. I think it's about all of us kind of having 
having the humility to say that we make mistakes and that we all need to learn and improve yeah but it's the same thing you know you you women have seen that with men you bring the topic of sexism it's like that's you just overreacting and you go like well i'm not really uh, and then you get the next one but haven't things really improved and you go like well it's not a credit that mm. things have got slightly better <laughs> that's supposed to be the norm so I think it's it's natural because I think people find it, and I would do that, you know, four or five years ago. And I've learned a lot when people will go like, I would I would definitely have sort of behavioral traits five, six years ago that I wouldn't do now, right? In meetings and stuff. And uh, you learn as you go along. And I think that's the point, you know, I've learned that you go like, maybe that aspect isn't good, that, that sort of thing. And right. So I think we all have got blind spots. We all have prejudices. We all have privileges. And I think... Mm -hmm. People always say that to me, are you not aware of your own prejudices? And I said, I'm sure I do. Everybody does. You know, nobody's a saint. But I would like people to point it out so I can then take it on board if it's true and then see how it goes, right? And if people point out that, uh, you know, and I, and one example I can give you, when I started this role, people said, you don't talk enough about people from the black community. And they were right. So I do make it a point to sort of pick it up and say that, you know, Bane term is too wide and all that. And mm -hmm. that, that was a feedback. So that's fair enough. Yeah, I think it's, you know, as you say, none of us is a saint, none of us is perfect, but being willing mm -hmm. to to listen to the feedback. And, and we do all have privileges and our own unconscious biases. And yep. the more that we can kind of think about those and work through those, the better yep. it will be. So I have some quick fire questions for you, if that's okay. Sure. So my first one is, is there a book or one or two books that you would recommend that everybody reads? Ooh, my books they don't, they don't are have to all... be medical. They can be any. They can be any. Yeah. Oh, they're not going to be medical. I can tell you, uh, my books are all comic books. I'm afraid. So, um, so that because uh, I I learn a lot of leadership from there. So one is a, one was a book which was kind of book or a comic book series which came out which was called Civil Wars which what happens when people heroes fight amongst themselves because of their prejudices and because of their beliefs I really okay. really uh, like that the other one I really liked recently was the one that Andre Agassi has written I don't know whether you've seen his um, uh, the, his autobiography so that, no that was brilliant I really mm -hmm. it's called Open. And I think okay. it shows the fallibility of leaders. I mean, he was a leader. He was a, such a flamboyant, the trouble. And I think it's a really good insight, which I always uh, think of. People need to look at others. You don't live, the, you don't inhabit their shoes. That's what I say. You need to be aware uh, of people's struggles. And you look at Andre Agassi, Nicolau, he's got the looks, he's got everything, he's got the money. Surely everything was brilliant. I think it's, that to me was a fantastic book to read about the travels and the travels and the uh, troubles uh, he went through and how much he struggled. I think it's a lovely insight. And to me, that's a lovely education about don't judge others straight away mm -hmm. by what you see. Uh, be aware of that uh, as you go forwards. So, yeah. Great. Those both sound like great books. Yeah. Um, my yeah. next question is, is there anything you know now that you wish you had known earlier on in your career? I think uh, I would say you learn, I think what would I, would I, I mean, it's sort of like an analogy and it's a question of would you change anything per se? Uh, I probably wouldn't, you know, I think I've been very fortunate from that regard. 
Mm -hmm. um, I would have loved to know probably a bit more about the system, but I've been blessed in my career, right? So I, I don't think there is anything I would turn back and say, oh, I wish I'd known that. No, I've been, I've been, as I said at the very beginning of this, I've been guided by some amazing people who probably gave me all the right information uh, when it was needed. So I owe a lot to them, you know, people like David Jenkins, Tony Zarlin, Alistair Miller, they've been amazing. So, yeah. Is there any advice that you've ever been given that's been really helpful that you would wish to pass on to other people? Yeah, don't take yourself too seriously. And I think absolutely that is very important. You've got to be grounded. Uh, and I say that, you know, I always have a person and that's me out there on social media, everything where it feels like, but I have got some amazing, amazing friends and family who keep me grounded. I, my friends, I've known them since I was five years old. We're still good friends. Mm -hmm. We meet up. I, I don't know anybody else who keeps me as grounded as, you know, it's brilliant. And I, you need that because they, they don't care who I am, what job I do in the NHS there or live in India and other parts of the world. Uh, keep yourself surrounded by friends who can keep you grounded. Uh, I think that's the best advice I can give you. And don't 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 believe your own hype. Uh, I think I've been mm -hmm. in that space uh, four or five years ago when everything felt fantastic. Uh, change comes around the corner. So uh, I think that's the advice I would give to everybody. That's, that's really helpful advice. Um, my last quick fire question is a question that I'm borrowing from a group of young people that work with the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. And they asked this question when they were interviewing people for the role of president at the Royal College. Um, and as you know, children always ask the best questions. Yeah. Um, so their question was, if you were a type of biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be and why? Oh, I would probably be a uh, cream cracker. Oh, because you can have a cream cracker with pretty much anything. So I'm adaptable. I would say. And I guess, um, I, I don't know if I was expecting you to say something about how your blood sugar wouldn't spike as much with a cream no, cracker as no. other biscuits. No, no, no. Love my job, not, but not, not put it into everything. No, no, no. no. Oh, well, cream crackers are brilliant. Um, and I think this is the first time we've had cream cracker on the podcast. I need to make a list of all the different biscuits that we've had. Yeah. But yeah, this is the first time. So um, thank you so much, Partha, for coming on the podcast. It's been so lovely to get to speak to you. As, as I was saying, I like reading your blog and follow, follow what you write on social media. So it's really cool to actually get to speak to you. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Medical Women podcast. Make sure to subscribe for free on whichever podcast platform you listen on so that you automatically get our episodes. The aim of this podcast is to support and empower as many medical women in their careers as we possibly can. So please share this episode with at least one other medical woman. If you're interested in joining the Medical Women's Federation, we would love to have you. And all links to our website and social media are in the show notes. This podcast has been produced on behalf of the Medical Women's Federation by Dr. Nathana Bayankaram and Ms. Jenna McKenzie. Our music was composed and played by Dr. Kethki Bayankaram. Thank you so much for listening.